and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today, we're going to have another very interesting show. We are continuing something that we began some 10 years ago or so of interviewing presidential candidates. Typically, they have been candidates running in third parties. Uh, However, occasionally, a Democratic candidate has come to the surface as well. In fact, it was Dennis Kucinich some years back when he was running for the Democratic nomination. And I so wish he had won, but that's another conversation. Today, we're going to be speaking with the candidate, Marianne Williamson. Marianne has been a guest on our show here on several occasions, last being when she ran for Congress out in California a few years back. And prior to that, we've discussed some of her wonderful best-selling books on uh, subjects she's been teaching about for decades. And now she has made a move, a big move, into this race, the current one for 2020, and we're very pleased to be able to speak with her and bring her points of view across to our listeners. A little bit on Marianne, Uh, she is an internationally renowned author and lecturer and thought leader. Six of her books have been New York Times bestsellers. In 1997, she published Healing the Soul of America, calling for a holistic perspective on America's political system. The book is an insightful examination of our history and politics, offering personal and political solutions for the renewal of our democracy. Marianne Williamson has also been a popular guest on TV shows such as Oprah, Larry King Live, Good Morning America, Uh, Charlie Rose, Piers Morgan, and others, of course, I should also say, A Better World Radio. And in uh, 2006, Newsweek magazine, in a poll there, called her one of the 50 most influential baby boomers. So it's uh, truly a pleasure to have Marianne on, which will happen as soon as I hear from her, which will be shortly, and uh, so we're going to just go through looking at some of the issues at hand for all candidates these days, because, well, there are hot buttons, you could say, hot buttons. This country, I don't even like to call it divided, I would rather say that I, I think a more accurate way of saying it is that We have many pockets of people, of the populace, who think very differently on the same subjects. Uh, The idea of health care, I mean, what is health care, and can we afford it is a phrase that often is posed, a question that's often posed. Uh, The subject inside of that of a woman's right to choose, the subject of abortion, that is... uh, that is so contested and so much of our politics surrounds and is involved in that in one manipulative way or another. That's a different kind of conversation. So we hope to unpack that with Marianne shortly as well. Vaccinations, another big hot button 
for people in the know about the nature of vaccinations and the harm and danger that they have uh, created for so many people. One of the worst told stories, i.e. not told much at all. And those who have actually examined the science see that it is a true hot button issue and it needs to be examined, especially in light of it being made mandatory in a number of states increasingly. Uh, the subject of the Green New Deal uh, and uh, the overall subject of global warming leading to accelerated climate change. I don't have to tell you, we address this on A Better World Radio all the time, literally almost every single show. In some measure, we are addressing solutions to these issues. Taxation. If one is running for president, one is going to have to deal with that other hot-button issue because this has to do with the distribution of payment for all of the services that are offered by our government. So this is a huge, huge issue in itself. And many think that the last tax legislation in the United States was nothing but a theft in broad daylight called by other names. And, well, you know, the numbers speak for themselves. I, we've given up some hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars to the wealthiest, the you know, 1% and less in tax benefits. Many of them were virtually embarrassed by the embarrassment of riches that came their way and not even requested, really. And yet they were being flooded with money and many gave it back in many ways. Well, I see that Marianne Williamson has just called in. Marianne, are you there with us? Y yes, I am. Wonderful. Can you hear me? Welcome back to a better world, Marianne. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I was just biding a little time waiting for you to call in, and I've done a rather thorough introduction of you, and people know who you are anyway, and you've been on this show a handful of times over time. So uh, you're not new to our audience, that's for sure. But you are new in light of your being a candidate for the Democratic nomination for President of the United States. That's novel, and we're thrilled to have you and love to ask you some questions about where you stand on a couple of these hot-button issues that are facing us today. Are you great? Game? Great. I look absolutely. Thank you. Okay, of course. I know you're in betwixt and between in South Carolina. You're always running. I know that because we've been trying to catch up to you for a bit of time now. So we really appreciate your being on, and we'll begin a process today. First of all, quite honestly, I would really like to just give you a forum for you to speak a little bit about what you would like the American people, Marianne, to first and foremost know about you and your candidacy as it may be distinguished from other very qualified people that are running for the Democratic nomination, many of whom actually have had ample amounts of direct political experience. The forum is yours. Well, I don't feel I'm running against anyone. I'm running with a lot of really good people, and they're all qualified. My contention is that I am as qualified. My contention is that my qualifications in many cases are different, but that today when we think of political expertise, that should expand to include wisdom. And I 
do challenge the idea that people whose careers have been entrenched for decades in the very limitations of the system, the political system that drove us into this ditch, are the only ones we should consider qualified to lead us out mm-hmm. of the ditch. You know, sometimes people have spent so much time around the trees that they're the ones who can't see the forest. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt said that the administrative aspects of the presidency are secondary and that the primary role of the presidency is moral leadership. And I've been a moral leader for the last 35 years. I've been someone working very up close and personal with people, transcending crises in their lives and turning those crises into opportunities. And a lot of the crises that I have seen are crises that, to be honest, were created by what I see as a reckless and irresponsible political establishment. You know, Donald Mm -hmm. Trump didn't come out of nowhere. Donald Trump didn't just appear. Donald Trump is an opportunistic infection that could not have occurred had there not been a weakened societal immune system. And some of those weakened immune cells were us, the citizens, and some of those weakened immune cells has to do with the entire political establishment that was not, in my mind, adhering to America's mission statement. We have an original mission statement in this country that all are created equal, that God gave everyone an alienable right to life and to liberty and to the pursuit of happiness. The governments are instituted to secure those rights, not limit those rights, not thwart those rights, not compromise with those rights, and that ours is to be a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. This is a government that has become of major corporations, by major corporations, and for major corporations. So politicians... Very true. Most And most of whom, with all due respect, I mean, if you look at, you know, opensecrets.org and you see the tens of thousands of dollars that even my opponents have received from these same multinational corporate, uh, uh, corporate uh, sponsors, what are Donors. we talking about here? Yep. What are we yes. talking about here? So I, I believe that if you look at the history of the United States, and you see the great movements forward when the United States had to self-correct. It was because the people stepped in. You know, the political yes. establishment didn't say less end slavery. The abolitionist movement that came from the early evangelicals and the Quakers, they're the ones who stepped in. It was because the people stepped in. When women were oppressed and did not have the right to vote, it wasn't the political establishment that said, that, that, that said, let's give women the right to vote and free women. It was waves of feminism and the women's suffragette movement. It was the people stepping in. When there was and the labor movement as well and la- the formation and the of labor, labor unions. Movement. That's right. And Social Security came from the Socialist Party. And, of course, exactly. the civil rights movement. Dr. King was a Baptist preacher. It wasn't the political establishment that rose up and said we're going to end segregation. It was the civil rights movement. So it is always... The great movement forward is when the people say, you know what, enough with this, and the people step in. So I do not apologize for the fact that I don't come from the system that got us here. I, 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 I come from a deep grounding in not just the voices of people, but the experiences of people, which give me a great sense of where things have gotten so off because I see the consequences in people's lives and have been for 35 years, although it's been in the last 20 years, that I've seen a level of of economic tension and anxiety that, that, that was not there before. And it also has yes. given me very passionate views about the things that need to change. Indeed. Well, one of the you know, wonderful things about you is that you're bringing such passion and love mm-hmm. of this country and of people 
of sentient life altogether to the foreground. And I, I think that's just so much your strength. And we know what comes, what passion begets. And I think that I am sure that when you go out among Americans from state to state, they are feeling your commitment and they're feeling your passion, which is something that I think is a, a very strong winning piece of the puzzle because it's an energy that gets transmitted. And, well, I know you, and I know that that is one of the cases. I'd like to take, Marianne, some of the points you're making here about the uh, mission statement of the United States of being for and by the people. And I agree with you wholeheartedly about what has been responsible, who has been responsible for changes in this country. You outlined them beautifully. But let's take a look at this from this view at some of the hot button issues that you are I'm sure dealing with every day on the campaign trail such as health care and abortion inside that and even vaccinations would you comment a little bit on from the mission statement point of view the constitutional perspective how you see these matters and if you were in office if you were elected what would you do in the white house in regard to these matters well should we begin with let's say health care sure where do you want to start <clears throat> okay so uh i would if, like if, first start yeah. with the whole the notion that is in circulation now of Medicare for all or universal health care, things of that sort, where do you stand on some approximation of that? Well, I absolutely support a Medicare for all type system. Uh, the question that many people have around the Medicare is should it be straight on Medicare right away and you remove private insurance or should it be Medicare for all as an augmentation to uh, what we have now with people able to keep their uh, private uh, coverage if they wish. Uh, there are people with very passionate views on either side. I don't have a passionate view on that, whether it's whether it's Medicare for all immediately or whether Medicare for all is a pop, as a public option. What I have a, a, a passion about is that yes. the issue of wondering what am I gonna, what's going to happen if I get sick, what's going to happen if one of my children gets sick. I want that question removed. I want that tension removed. I want that anxiety mm -hmm. removed. To me, one of the ways you pursue happiness is that you can breathe, that you're not so tense and anxious that the questions like, how am I going to uh, take care of my health care? How am I going to send my kids to college? How am I going to pay these college loans? I want those shackles removed. I want yes. the material conditions removed so that people can soar. That, to me, is the American dream, that all people have inalienable rights to be who they can be according to their own God-given potential, and government should be working to remove the obstructions, not to place obstructions, not to, not to cap people's dreams, but to unleash people's spirits. So right now, our health care agenda isn't driven by government adhering to the mission of uh, helping people pursue happiness to secure that right, but is driven more by short-term profits for big pharma and health insurance companies, just like our yes. national security agenda is driven by short-term profits for uh, defense contractors, and our and our climate crisis agenda is driven by short-term profits for health insurance companies, et cetera. Now, exactly. in addition to that, I think we need to realize that our health care system in America is not a health care system. It is a sickness 
healthcare system. Western mm-hmm. medicine is very good at providing uh, providing medical care for acute conditions, but we have so many more chronic disease diseases in America than we should even have. So many people have unnecessary instances uh, and experiences of chronic illness that they wouldn't have if the food was healthier, if our environmental policies were healthier, if our agricultural policies were healthier. So there is so much that goes on in this country way before people actually manifest sickness that actually makes sickness more probable, including our economic policies that cause so much stress for so many people. So when I'm exactly. president, there will really be a, a health care system and that I will wish for the whole society to do more to more of the policies, all of the policies of the United States that have more to do with actually promoting health and well-being than promoting the stress and anxiety that is inevitable when short-term profits for major multinational corporations are our new false god and our economic bottom line. Beautiful. Now let's go to this notion of a woman's right to choose, which of course connotes this idea of a right, if a woman chooses, of abortion. Well, I believe that abortion is an issue of private and not public morality. I don't think the government has any right to tell people what they can or cannot do with their body. That men do, do have no right to be making laws that govern what a woman does with her body. And this current state of laws is, is an attack on the full human agency of women. It is a strategy designed, and it is obviously going to be successful uh, to take this to the Supreme Court. And to be honest, uh, it's, uh, there's no guarantee that uh, Roe v. Wade will not be overturned. Now, that is a moral issue right there, because if Roe v. Wade is overturned, we will go back to the days when rich women uh, will have healthy abortions, and women who cannot afford it will have the equivalent of back alley abortions. And make no mistake about it, women suffered, uh, women uh, harmed their bodies, and in in many cases, women even died. So it is a terrible thing that's happening. And uh, women will go through this. American women uh, are not going to forget this, and we are going to go through this together. And I feel confident that even if Roe v. Wade is uh, overturned, which I hope it will not be, uh, mm-hmm. we will live – I don't know if I will live to see the day, but America in time, uh, that right will be reinstituted. And I do support the legislative uh, proposals to codify uh, the right to choose into law. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thank you for that thorough answer. I appreciate it. And the public-private uh, distinction. Vaccinations, which are, of course, uh, controversial in themselves. The science is very questionable. Uh, people who have really researched this, like Robert F. Kennedy and many others, uh, many doctors, know that there really isn't much science at all behind vaccinations of all sorts, by the way. And yet, now, increasingly, they're becoming mandatory in different states across the country. Where do you stand on this? Well, actually, I'm not involved in everything that you just said, Mitchell. I think that there are very sincere, uh, very highly skilled scientists who actually would disagree with what you said. The problem mm-hmm. is how many of the scientists who are delivering this, informa- delivering this information have been paid for by Big Pharma. 
and yes. Americans, for very understandable reasons, do not accept something anymore just because Big Pharma said it. This is the problem with a with a profit making healthcare uh, system, uh, profit based healthcare system uh, in, in general. So, yes. uh, you know, I, I do not believe, for instance, what you just said about how all vaccinations. Uh, that none of them have any validity. I think I, I simply do not believe. No, that. I didn't say that they didn't have validity. I yeah. said that the science was yeah. questionable in many yeah, respects. Right. That is not made public. Yeah. 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 I, I definitely agree with that. Now, normally, if a president says I'm going to have a commission, that's almost like a joke because all that I'm going to have a commission means is that we're all going to have this information. It's going to be put in a book and then it's going to be put on a shelf somewhere. In this yes. particular case. The commission, the, what would make a commission um, very significant is that it would be in no way scientists paid for by big pharmaceutical companies. That's number one. Number two, even though I, I do respect both people who um, uh, do not want their children to be vaccinated and I respect people who do feel it's a, a public uh, health that they should be, I cannot support a government effort that makes, that makes it mandatory for a parent to put a needle in their child's arm. I, I can't support that. I cannot okay. support that. Thank you. Yes. That's in alignment with what you were saying before about a woman's right to choose, Marianne, that it is not a public matter. It is a private well, one. It is in accordance with that I, thinking. Well, that's what it's not. But, but let's, let's be, be honest here. It's not as simple because a, a, a woman's right to choose affects her body, and then the, the, the conversation extends, of course, to the notion of an unborn child. And, with, I mean, obviously in terms of her own personal life or relationship to a man in many cases. Whereas I understand that there are very sincere, very intelligent people who would argue about the public health issue. I myself have said, so why is it such a big deal if people get measles? I got measles. Why is it such a big deal? But then you have mm-hmm. some people say, yes, but if – if the child with measles is around an infant, an infant could die. But then on the other hand to that, you have, you have Big Pharma that has paid up to $4 billion to parents whose children have been harmed and even died because of vaccines. So this is a tough one. This is a gnarly one. But in the meantime, yeah. like I said, I would have a commission with non-pharmaceutically paid scientists, and also I do not support mandatory uh, vaccines. The very idea of it, there's just something about that. Once government starts telling you, you know, I've seen mothers at my talks with tears in their eyes. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I know my own experience when my daughter was a baby. Yeah, the idea that government would tell me what I had to do with her. Mm-mm. 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 No. I hear you. I hear you. Okay, let's move on because I, I know you don't have a whole lot of time, and I do want to cover a few a uh, number of things here, Marianne, and we're going to have to have you back on when you can find the time oh, I'm, I'm to go. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Beautiful, absolutely. To we're dealing with national and domestic things first, uh, but I would love to be able to take a look at the larger picture. And uh, but right now, I'd like to. This this is both a micro and a macro question, and that has to do with our environment. That has to do with our beautiful planet Earth. It has to do with global warming, accelerating climate change, anthropogenic role in all of this. What would you say about the Green New Deal? What would you say if this yes or another proposal of similar ilk? How would you handle this? I agree with those who believe that our climate crisis is the greatest moral challenge of our generation. 
I understand that we have 12 years uh, during which if we do not take immediate and serious action that we could cause irreparable harm. We have to sequester that carbon. We have to reforest. We have to develop sustainable energy. We need to develop sustainable um, transportation. We have to deal with factory farming, the nitrous oxide, the methane that that puts in the air. First thing I would do Mm -hmm. is to uh, appoint a world-class environmental scientist uh, to the head of the EPA. Uh, no more chemical company lobbyists or oil company lobbyists. All fossil fuel apologists can go work elsewhere. They will no longer <laughs> yes. work at the EPA when I'm when I'm president. And the EPA will be a magnet for the kinds of environmental scientists and sustainability experts that we need. And the EPA will know that uh, in me they have a president who places the full powers of the executive branch uh, at their disposal to to help create uh, the kind of force. Uh, the kind of force in terms of expertise, but also in terms of of national understanding uh, that will enable us to deal with these problems. Now, in terms of the Mm -hmm. Green New Deal, it's not a bill, it's a resolution. I think it's a great idea. What's not to love? So you create a lot of ideas, you create create a lot of jobs, which we're going to need anyway, because we have this huge wave of uh, automation that's coming at us like a tsunami. So some mix of a a federal jobs guarantee and universal basic income is going to be necessary anyway. You develop all these jobs, you retrofit buildings, you have you, you and you have sustainable energy that you're that you're creating. What's not to love? So of course, I think that's all part of the same uh, movement forward. Okay, great. Now you know I've been saying all along, and I've interviewed Robert Hockett, who is. Uh, one of AOC's chief advisors on the Green New Deal. And I said at the very beginning of it, why not just call this an infrastructure deal since all of new building and structures and every energy system is now essentially green in nature because green, no pun intended, uh, because green is the most energy efficient and sustainable way of building anyway. And uh, so, you know, that's been a conversation we've been having, and it looks like it might be moving in that direction. But in fact, you know, it's sort of wedded. Having a Green New Deal and a Green New Infrastructure Deal could possibly be the same uh, piece of legislation. What are your thoughts? I don't know what problem. Why do you have a problem with the phrase New Deal? I mean, to those of us who are Democrats, to those of us who love FDR, the New Deal was a pretty fabulous thing for this country. Why should we Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love that. I personally love it. I think it's great. I just think that it could be blended <clears throat> into what's also being kicked around as called the infrastructure deal. And that well, the two the really should be one and the same is really what I'm saying. Well, a Green New Deal is an infrastructure deal, but it is green. And if you have an infrastructure deal that is not specifically named as a green infrastructure deal, then an infrastructure deal could do end up doing more to harm the environment uh, than to give benefits that otherwise would be associated with an infrastructure plan. So I, I like keeping it all. I, I think we need a more holistic vision of where the society needs to go. Yes, we need to fix our infrastructure and we need to go green. Both, it's, it's a both and. Yes. Yes, yes. Okay, no, I'm I'm just asking, you know, and poking and just looking at various distinctions that exist. One yeah. of the roles that you would be playing in the White House upon election, Marianne, is commander in chief. There is a geopolitical 
time bomb or two that are out there in the world by the by the way things have been handled to date as you were referring to before the military industrial complex is enormous and basically it's making a lot of the rules and regulations and budgetary decisions in the pentagon and therefore in washington and it's been going on before Eisenhower, even though he was the one who gave us the heads up on it, it was already known, which is why he was articulating it. What would you do and how would you begin to handle dismantling or whatever word you would use the current corporatocracy that exists? Well, are you asking me about the corporatocracy specifically as it relates to our national defense strategy? or To start with, and then, the- then lar- okay. looking at the mm-hmm. larger, what you called it, an infection. Um, right. Uh, you right. know, at the very beginning, you called like there's a systemic infection, and that right. has to do right. with corporate control. Right. So we're starting well, with military corporate- and going from that micro to the larger systemic infection of corporatocracy so, okay, gonna, in the country. I, I'm going to do it kind of from the other side. And so that is that we sure. realize that ever ever since, uh, of course, the military-industrial complex began to uh, serious build up in the 1960s, then the whole issue of the nefarious influence of money on our society that began uh, really to explode in the 80s and then with, was sort of codified with the, the Citizens United Supreme Court decision that gave the power to corporations to just flood in unlimited ways our political system. And so we now have such an undue influence of money on our politics as to be a cancer that underlies all the other symptoms, a cancer underlying all the other cancers. As I said before, we don't have health insurance uh, uh, because of big pharma and health insurance companies. We don't have common sense gun legislation because of gun uh, manufacturing companies. Uh, we don't fight mm-hmm. climate change the way we need to because of uh, fossil fuels, et cetera. When, how this plays out in our national security agenda is that our national, and, and increasingly dangerously so, by the way, is that our national security agenda is driven more by short-term profits for defense contractors and the nuclear industry than by a true agenda for peace in the world. Now, you can't mm-hmm. just take medicine. You have to cultivate. You have to cultivate health. So, when it comes to a national security agenda, I am as interested in cultivating peace as I am in making sure we have the right medicine and the right surgeon. Should we need the right surgeon? And that's how I see the U.S. military. I have a lot of respect for the U.S. military. I think we all should. Uh, my father fought in World War II. The problem here is not military decisions. It is not the military who make these decisions. These are political decisions. Uh, Much of the military spending we do is way over and beyond anything the military even asks for. When you have, for instance, the United States Air Force ordering 100 B-21 Raiders, and each one costs $550 million, and each one carries both uh, conventional and nuclear weapons, Obviously, to say that our national defense uh, necessitates 100 uh, airplanes that carry nukes is absurd, given the fact that five of those drop and it's over for human civilization as we know it, 10 of those drop Mm -hmm. and it's over for humanity for the next few hundred thousand years. So Mm -hmm. what I see is a, a military budget that is now $718 billion a year. Then you have a State Department budget. Now, what does the State Department do? 
State Department is a political equivalent of nutrition and exercise and lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It's diplomacy. It's mediation. It's development. And also it is specific peace-building agencies. Peace-building has to do with the factors that are guaranteed statistically to increase the incidence of peace and decrease the incidence of violence. Those factors are the expansion of economic opportunities for women, the expansion of educational opportunities for children, the diminishment of violence against women, and the amelioration of unnecessary human suffering wherever possible. Now, the specific peace bill, we already said, right, 718 for your military in a year, 40 billion mm-hmm. for the State Department, and of the agencies specifically assigned to peace building within the State Department, less than a billion. And then 17 billion for the USAID, which is humanitarian assistance, and then the United States Institute of Peace, which is a separate agency, gets 36 million. So you can see that the resources we spend on building and waging peace are small compared to the resources, the energy, and the money that we spend on endless opportunities for creating war. Anytime you have war uh, making so much money for so many people, you have a problem. What we have today, for instance, the acting head and, and currently nominated chief of the uh, Department of Defense is was a 30-year executive at Boeing, and in this and, and we have a yeah. a national security agenda. For instance, we have, for the sake of 350 billion dollars in arms sales to Saudi Arabia, are now giving support aerial support to a genocidal war in Yemen. Tens of thousands of people have starved, including all those children whose pictures are all over the Internet. There was a bipartisan effort trying to stop it, and the president vetoed it, and we haven't been able to override the veto. Another bipartisan effort, and now Mike Pompeo, our State Department uh, chief, is saying, oh, it's a matter of national national security emergency. This, This is what happens when the United States completely gives up all moral leadership. So we have just become corporate whores. We've become corporate whores in terms of our domestic agenda. We've become corporate whores in terms of our international agenda. And this is why I'm running for president. Hallelujah. And you're bringing up by implication while the uh, whoriness of the United States government has actually been in place for many, many years decades, I would argue, uh, it has reached a certain nadir. And uh, I would ask you, from that point of view, something that's really current in mainstream media, which is the discussion of impeachment. Where do you stand on that? What are your thoughts? The impeachment issue is getting thicker and gnarlier every day. Yes. I... I realize, you know, I I do think Nancy Pelosi, boy, I don't envy her her job right now. She's clearly aware of all the different political, legal, and political and legal issues involved. And moral. And 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 moral. The 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 House Democrats, I think, are doing the proper job. They're demonstrating spine. They are carrying out due process in terms of the protection of the Constitution, and the Mm -hmm. alignment with their own 
uh, with her own uh, constitutional authority. They will be talking to Mueller. They will be talking to Barr. They will be talking to McCann. Uh, clearly, this president, in my opinion, the president has certainly committed impeachable offenses. The political issue of whether or not to impeach him is where it gets difficult because the Republicans control the Senate, so they would not remove him. And, you know, i got to tell you, Mitchell, last night I turned on Fox News, mm-hmm. and I was watching a program which really ran it home for me. There are so many millions of Americans who, if we were to impeach the president, would see him totally as a victim. That is the way, the way the narrative is being driven by Fox News and other yes. right-wing media. He is seen just as a victim, and that could cost us the election in 2020. So it's a tough, tough call. It's a tough, it is tough, tough call. And um, I don't, um, you know, I'm really um, just sending all kinds of good energy um, in, from my heart to the people in the House of Representatives uh, yes. who will be making that decision right now. I support the process that they are um, that they are carrying out the journey that they are undertaking, um, and the good news is the no. I appreciate that articulation of the issue, Marianne. It really is thorny. Uh, I have to say, I've uh, uh, Warren's view. I feel <clears throat> aligned with in as far as her saying this is not a political matter, this is a constitutional one, and that it has to do with the preservation of our republic and our democracy, and the political subject of it and its thorniness really has to be uh, subordinated to the rule of law. And I know uh, my old friend Rocky Anderson used to say the same kinds of things during the Bush Gore, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the Bush Cheney administration. Uh, you know, it it just gets to a point where you have to put politics aside and do what you feel is the right thing to do. And I just want to remind you that during the Nixon era, that was a Republican Senate also. But, but the disclosures the that occurred during mm-hmm. the uh, impeachment um, discovery process were such that there was no Republican who could actually stand yeah. by the president after the disclosure. Yeah. yeah, but that was a different breed of Republican because the truth of the matter is That's the true. discoveries that have already been made here, the discoveries that have been made here are already more egregious uh, than have been that, that came against Nixon. But you have a different kind of Republican, so you can't compare them. And I, I respect your opinion uh, about how we have to put uh, politics second. But I also respect those uh, who believe, as I do, that, boy, they're both important, and we have to think really, really deep about this. You might be right. I certainly respect where you come from. I respect where uh, Elizabeth is from in this. Sure. Sure. It's not a black and white issue. It is definitely thorny and, as you said, gnarly, a very good word for it. And uh, we're we're forging our way through it. Um, And also, yes, I'm sorry. Well, I just know how I look at my own campaign. And I I know in my own campaign I see and what I believe, not only for myself, but really for the Democratic Party, um, in 2020 is not making it about that man. Yes. And if we get mm-hmm. locked into impeachment, it's going to be all about him. It's going yes. to be all about him. And I actually yes. don't believe that's the winning. T- I don't. I don't believe that's the winning argument for 2020. 
Yes. In fact, I'm glad you brought that up because you and I can speak and we will go in a subsequent show into uh, greater depth of the role of the United States from your point of view in the geopolitical morass and possibility, by the way, because, uh, you know, you are have been an advocate of the Department of Peace that representative, former representative and Democratic uh, nominee, Dennis Kucinich proposed back then of the Department of Peace, and we're both great advocates of that. Uh, and so I, I appreciate very much your your purview on that. I'd love to ask you, how is the campaign going? What's happening on the ground? What are the responses well, you're the getting? <clears throat> well, the campaign is very exciting. I assume you know I made not only the 65,000 unique donors I do, that we course. need to qualify for the debates, and I want to take this opportunity to thank uh, anyone listening who helped us get there, but also as of this week, uh, we passed the the even higher qualifier, which is we we made it into three. Uh, we got the one percent in three national polls. So now we're in, and we're oh, going to be at those debates. We're going to be at the yes. in Miami, January. Yeah, I know. It's very very exciting, and I'm uh, I'm in uh, South Carolina right now. I go to New York later tonight. I'm on CNN tomorrow and Young Turks tomorrow, and yeah, yes. we're out there. You know, we've been Excellent. the little engine that could. Uh, clearly, <laughs> uh, the uh, the political and media establishment hasn't exact, you know, exactly thrown its doors open, but uh, <laughs> some have given us a fair shot, and uh, we're on more and more. You know, I had my CNN town hall. I'm on more and more. So uh, yes, uh, we're moving forward, and I uh, I hope that anybody who likes the ideas of the campaign, I hope people will go to Marianne2020.com, check out the. Um, the issues, and if you want to see this out there, uh, please uh, send uh, send what you can, donate what you can, so that we can have the infrastructure uh, that is that that provides enough form uh, to give this candidacy uh, an equal level of contention with the traditional yes. candidates. Well, that is beautiful. I am so thrilled to hear all of this. You keep passing these these bars, you know, and it's, it's excellent. Now with the 1%. I saw you on CNN I recently. I thought you did wonderfully, you know. Thank you. Thank you. Well, well really? you send me a lot of good energy going into those debates because, um, Absolutely. you know. Absolutely. <laughs> but it's really a collective effort. I mean, I, when I think of those 65,000 unique donors, um, yeah, uh, my heart is filled with so much gratitude. But you know, God, the yes. Mitchell, there's so many of us who just who feel that it's time for the people to step in. You know, when you look yes. at the greatest moments when America needed a course correction, uh, and we mm-hmm. need a course correction right now. In those moments yes. in our history, it wasn't that the political establishment uh, woke, woke up and said, oh, let's end slavery. The political establishment didn't wake up and say, oh, let's give women the right to vote. The, women, the political establishment didn't wake up one day and say, oh, let's end segregation. In every single case, it was a matter of the people who stepped in. It was the early abolitionists. Who made who 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 began the journey to abolition? It was the women's yeah. suffragette party, the women's party who began the journey to suffrage. It was the civil rights movement that began the journey uh, to um, 
uh, to ending segregation. It was a marriage equality movement that made uh, paved the way uh, for the uh, the legality of gay marriage and so forth. So my candidacy emerges from the consciousness of millions of us who just look at the political establishment and, first of all, don't feel that a better version of same old, same old will even beat Donald Trump. You know, anybody who thinks that we just need somebody tough enough to beat Trump, I think, is very naive about the nature of the opponent here. I believe mm-hmm. we have a big lie on our hands, and the only way to defeat a big lie is with some big truth. And that's what my campaign mm. is. is getting down and brutally honest and real about the fact that our government is not functioning as a democracy. It's functioning as a veiled aristocracy. Well, yes. I'm getting down and real about race relations in this country, and that's why I talk about paying reparations for slavery. I'm getting down and real about, about millions of chronically traumatized children and how we need to make a massive realignment of our investment in the direction of children 10 years old and younger and have a U.S. Department mm. of Children and Youth. And I'm getting down and getting real about how we have to wage peace and not just allow a national security agenda, as is happening right now with the saber rattling towards Iran and the saber rattling towards, towards Venezuela. So I, I believe that there's a level of real brutally honest and self-aware truth-telling on the part of our country right now uh, that is necessary, a real atonement for some things, a real making of amends from things for things. And that's what I've been doing for 35 years. That's the process yes. I facilitate. And all that a nation is is a group of individuals. So I believe that those same psychological and emotional and systems issues that heal a life are what we need to transform our country. Oh, Marianne, you sound like me. (laughs) I've been saying such similar things for so long. There are are a few of us out there. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Speaking that line, and it really is true. It's a bunch of people. And if you could speak to people, which you and I have been doing for a long time, you on a much more massive scale, which I think is so wonderful. And uh, but it's true. And when you you speak from your heart and you speak from your mind, it's so it's alignment there and congruence that makes you so powerful a teacher for so many years. And have you've helped so many people? I mean, I know the age work you used to do, and you've been involved in different social justice issues for the longest time. And in fact, honestly, uh, you should get me a copy of your book on the healing soul of America because I haven't really had a chance to dive into that. And that so is another in powerful expression of your own understanding of the historical and moral position of the United States going back to its inception. And I think that's actually a significant distinction between you and others uh, who are in this race. I hate calling it a race, quite honestly, but, you know, that's the the lingo. Uh, Because there are so many people these days who really don't have a grasp on the on the history of the country and what its original uh, tenets are about. And you do. And I think that's very meritorious. Well, thank you so much. And I want, please send me your address because I want to send you my new book, which is called A Politics of Love, Handbook Handbook for a New American Revolution, which takes the conversation that I began with healing the soul of America and takes it to to the place where we're in now. So um, mm. 
I mean, the conversation, the narrative of American, the polarity between the brilliance and the illumination of our first principles and those base human instincts, which too often have run our public policy, that polarity has been with us from the beginning. You know, when you have the signers of the Declaration of Independence, who on one hand bequeathed to us such amazing principles, right? Well, 41 of them were. Not all of them were, but 41 of them were. That polarity has been with us every generation, and every generation decides, you know, its own identity. And that's what we are as a country right now. We're having an identity crisis. And it's up to this generation of Americans to decide, we're going to be, we're going to really do this, all people are created equal thing? Are we going to really do this, all people have the right to pursue happiness thing? Are we going to do that? Are we going to do that, other people, by the people, for the people thing? Or are we going to mm-hmm. acquiesce, be too distracted, too entitled, too cynical, and too self-involved to realize we're being played by, like fools? And our country is becoming more and more of a situation where, you know, what we have now, 1% of the people owning more wealth than the bottom 90%. Uh, it's an aristocracy. Which we, we, this is what we repudiated in 1776, and we need to repudiate it again. Exactly. Hallelujah. From your mouth to God's ears, as we say. Well, and, um, from in, my mouth, yes, and what we need to stop in between at the voting booth. <laughs> That's right. By the way, by the way, I want to close with um, um, uh, an idea that comes to us from uh, Paul Hawkins, the great environmental activist's uh, book called Blessed Unrest, which is all about the literally millions of millions of people across the world, Marianne, who are involved in NGOs, in nonprofit organizations, in B corporations, actually even in regular, you know, C corps that are very committed to a positive outcome for our species, for our planet, and are working diligently, assiduously on behalf of sentient life on the planet. On, in local areas like the Grameen Bank, for instance, offering microcredit uh, loans of 50 to 75 to 100 dollars to women in developing countries, for instance. This kind of grassroots, very local activity is happening everywhere. You don't read about it much in the media. You'll hear about it here at a better world. But you know, we are few and far between. Uh, media outlets that are really telling the truth about the good that is taking place all over and it's beautiful to know and you are so much part of that and I love the whole idea of the politics of love and putting that foot first instead of a defensive posture of what if they do this and that's that all you know lower brain reptilian thinking that our government and life is so largely governed by and what i hear and feel from you as i have for many years is it's very a proactive it's sort of let's look at optimal health and optimal well-being and optimal justice instead of just this uh, more slackened world view. Do you know what I mean? Well, I definitely know what you mean. And I, I want to say something. 
um, in response Please. to that whole business about Paul's book, the wonderful book, Blessed Unrest, and all of his stuff is so wonderful. And I certainly know about the Grameen Bank. I've traveled to Africa where sure. I met uh, Muhammad Yunus. I've met him on several occasions. Yes. But I, yes. I want to say something that I think is really important for people in the transformational higher consciousness community to recognize. When it comes to the consciousness of the American people, and I think the consciousness of people in the world, we're doing fine. And we're doing fine because of exactly what you just said. The problem lies in the fact that the political system is so regressive that it is so impacted by what you would call a more reptilian consciousness. The, mm-hmm. the, the thing we want to avoid is thinking, well, as long as I take part in all of this new birth that is happening in the nonprofit sector, then that's enough. Because at this point, it's not enough. It's like mm-hmm. when I heard Deepak Chopra say, if I want health, I'm going Ayurvedic. But if I'm in a car crash, someone please get me to a Western hospital emergency room as soon as possible. We cannot just go Ayurvedic here. We have to realize we've got a torn aorta here. We need to go with electoral politics as well because that might not be the ultimate solution, but it's a problem that will kill us all if we don't address it. So I think a real shift has got to be from ignoring it and standing on the sidelines and just rolling our eyes about it or allowing our cynicism to be our justification for not helping. And that's why I hope that if people feel that what my candidacy is doing is bringing this more transformational wisdom into the political sector, that they will, will, will support my campaign. Absolutely. Beautiful. Well, Marianne, Thanks so much for being on the show again and sharing your views. Uh, it's very exciting. You are showing a lot of what we call in New York chutzpah for being out there on the road as you are meeting with people and talking about what's so deeply important to you. And we're very glad that you've done that and carved out some time for us to do that here on A Better World. And remember, Mitchell, you don't have to be a New Yorker to say chutzpah. Well, wherever they're Jews, they use the word chutzpah. And it has such great meaning now that everybody knows it. So thank you for the acknowledgement. It's okay, chutzpah, to do something like what we do. And I want to acknowledge you for yours, too. And thank you so much for having me. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I know you oh, don't have God. to be from New York, but, you know, <laughs> it just happens <laughs> that I am. <laughs> I think so. the fact that I'm from Texas actually is what gives me chutzpah, but I know what you mean. Thank you so much. That's right. That's right. That's right. Talk to you later. It's how Yiddishkeit has entered into the public sphere. I love it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, God Thank bless you, you and the good work you're doing. And uh, next time when, when you when I have you on, uh, and I'll speak with Wendy about that, of course, um, you know, let's go into the whole subject of the United States as policemen of the world or dot, dot, dot. Are you game? Yes, and let's make the United States, you know, when I'm president of the United States, the world will know our greatest ally is humanity itself. Let's make it happen. That's Absolutely. God bless. Thank you again, Marion. You. Give your website you. out again for people to come Great. and help, Great. volunteer, donate. Great. Thank you. Marianne2020.com or MarianneWilliamsonForPresident.com, however you want to get there. Fly with me. Beautiful. Thanks again, Marianne. We'll be in touch soon. Thank you. And I'll get you the address, of course. Okay. Bye-bye. Sure. 
Marianne Williamson for president. God bless her. Uh, it takes a lot of strength, a lot of courage, a lot of persistence to do what she is doing in this field. And uh, she's coming from such a, a depth of caring and depth of compassion for human beings and for sentient life that I, I just I really tip my hat to her and we're so thrilled to have her on A Better World. So I want to just thank all of you for being on and uh, tuning in today, as you so often do. It's always a pleasure. We'll be actually developing our platform and moving on to another one relatively soon. You will be notified through our newsletter. So if you do not yet get that newsletter, uh, please go to our website at www.com abetterworld.tv abetterworld.tv and remember that we are a 501c3, a nonprofit org and your contributions here help to keep us alive and sustained on the air doing what we do both on radio and in community TV here in New York City since March of 1993 every single week so become part of a better world community if you're not already. Sign up for the free newsletter and realize we have a series of services available, counseling, coaching, individual couples, family, and a series of energy balancing stress management services. God knows we need that one. And uh, all of that can be found on abetterworld.tv or www.mitchellrabin.com. Dot com M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L-R-A-B-I-N dot com. Thanks again for joining, and make sure to visit Marianne Williamson's websites and uh, get involved. It's dire, as she said. It is dire at this point in time, politically and environmentally, and in respect to justice, we so need a balancing out and I believe it is true what Marianne was saying about the upsurge of people and government responds to people. I've been writing letters to my congressmen and to other congressmen and senators for decades. I am outspoken, as are many of my friends, and I just simply believe that this is the way to go. We've had Sam Daly Harris on reclaiming our democracy, and it's all about telling our representatives what it is we want. Not being told, but we do the telling. And that's what Marianne is seemingly really urging, and I am in whole alignment with that. So on that note, this is Mitchell J. Raven for A Better World. Thank you so much for joining again. Forward this also to your friends and family and to others. And uh, let them hear what Marianne has to share with us about her candidacy and about how to drive our nation and planet forward in a loving, kind, compassionate, and thoughtful way. Thanks again, and I'll see you all next week.